0: W Media.
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve.
0: Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein.
1: And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk.
0: Well, there's lots of news in our corner of the world again this week, per usual, including growing calls to treat the warming of the planet as a national security threat. In Asia, Taiwan-confirmed U.S. Special Forces are conducting training missions on the island, and the Justice Department has announced new arrests and terror financing. You've got something along those lines this week, Gene.
1: That's right, Jeff. Tracking some terrorists and other kinds of bad guys has gotten a little bit more difficult. And you can blame the rise of cryptocurrency.
2: A lot of this world is still unregulated. And just like you've had in the past tax havens or pockets of places where money laundering is replete or shell companies are created, same thing here. You're going to have pockets of uh, illicit activity dark corners of this universe that are used by bad actors to access capital and money. And that becomes then a challenge for law enforcement.
1: Hear more from Juan Zarate, who after 9-11 led the U.S. government fight against terrorist financing and money laundering later in the show. Special bonus, Jeff, he includes a primer on exactly what cryptocurrency is for those of us who are struggling with the concept
0: yeah, I need that primer because uh, I get lost in cryptocurrency. It's just not my my thing, but I do know that it's uh, a dangerous new channel of terror financing, and uh, it's something that we're going to track uh, from time to time over the coming months. Meanwhile, Chris Whipple, a longtime journalist and filmmaker, hit the publishing big time in two thousand and seventeen with his book, The Gatekeepers how the White House chiefs of staff define every presidency. That was followed by the spymasters, how the CIA directors shape history and the future. Reviewers called it required reading, a page turner, and so forth. Chris Buckley in the New York Times called it the best book about the CIA I have ever read. It's out this week in paperback. So I called up Chris Whipple at his home in New York. Welcome to Spy Talk. The subtitle of your book is How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. Is there an implication in there that CIA directors operate independently of the presidents that they work for, even that they're maybe a rogue agency?
3: Well, Jeff, first of all, great to be with you. Um, You know, I've always said, and you probably heard me say before, that The CIA was was once accused of being a rogue elephant, famously by Frank Church way back in the 70s, uh, when all the scandals uh, came shaking out of the closet. I've always felt uh, that at least since the 70s, that the CIA has actually acted as a kind of check on rogue presidents. I mean, all you have to do is look at Richard Nixon and Dick Helms. You know, Helms was no angel and did all kinds of stuff he shouldn't have done uh, for LBJ and Richard Nixon. But when in the at the end of the day, he stood up to Richard Nixon and refused to participate in the Watergate cover up, thereby arguably bringing Nixon down. Now, you know, fast forward uh, 50 years to Donald Trump and his first impeachment. Uh, I think there's a there's a kind of an uh, an elegant symmetry there that guess who the whistleblower was who 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 brought the Ukraine scandal to light. It was an anonymous CIA whistleblower. So I think that you can actually make the argument that um, CIA has tended to rein in rogue presidents and not the other way around.
0: Let's name some of the positives to start with on the in the ledger of the CIA. Uh, I think of one offhand, uh, the development of the U-2 spy plane back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but there's also a lot of negatives, uh, the overthrow of uh, Mossadegh and Iran in 1953. And of course, jumping way forward, misjudging the presence of uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq, failure to stop the 911 attacks, and so on—all of these things we're still paying a lot for. W- where do you come out on the total ledger of CIA uh, operations well, and spying?
3: Yeah, look, we could we could talk all day long and and all, you know into next week about the, the negatives of the CIA. There's no question about it. From the Bay of Pigs. Uh, all the way up to uh, and including Iraq. Um, and, and you even have to ask the question, was, was, the, was the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan also an intelligence failure? Uh, I think it, it, unquestionably it was. Um, so there's plenty of negative stuff to talk about. And, and, but to me, what's fascinating about where we are today is that uh, I have an interview with Bill Burns. I think it was the first interview he did as CIA director in the paperback edition of the Spy Masters, which is published this week. Um, and Burns was, um, was interesting, I thought. And, and one of the things that is, is fascinating about Burns is that uh, he feels, much as Colin Powell felt about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and his role in selling it, Burns really regrets that as a diplomat, he did not push back harder and and do something to prevent the Iraq war. Yeah, Uh, I was
0: struck by that also.
3: That keeps him up at night. That still bothers him. You have to hope that that informs his approach to Joe Biden and his willingness to tell Joe Biden what he does not want to hear.
0: Well, I think so, too. I wrote a piece about that. Uh, when he was nominated saying that uh, it gave me personally great comfort to know that there was at least one official who was accepting some blame for a huge mistake, a strategic mistake that's going to be with us a long time. Um, And I haven't heard anyone else step forward and say, gee, I was really wrong about that. Colin Powell did to an extent. Um, But otherwise, we haven't had a lot of accountability. Um, so what else would you ascribe to Burns as assets in his personality uh, that we can look forward to during his well, appointment?
3: You know, outside, outsider directors uh, have a very tough challenge. I mean, I mean Kofer Black uh, told me that whenever an outsider director comes into the CIA, it's like Scottish tribes greeting the English king. Uh, not not they're not always welcomed with open arms but i think burns is as the consummate diplomat was very smart the way he came in he did not bring an entourage of sycophants the way uh, others have done Mm -hmm. porter goss comes to mind
0: yeah uh, that was a disaster
3: and and some others Uh, so i think he was quite smart the way he came in and one real advantage he has is that he was uh, ambassador to Jordan, which was which is one of the busiest CIA stations in the world. Mm-hmm. The Burns worked very closely with those guys. So he is no stranger both both to the analysts and the covert operatives at the CIA. He knows the territory. And the other big plus he brings is a very good relationship with Joe Biden. He's known him for 25 years. I think they have a good relationship and as I as I explained in the spy masters and and and, and I tell various stories uh, that illustrate it, uh, the CIA director commands an army of of analysts, operatives, paramilitary warriors and lethal drones. But if he does not have the ear of the president, the whole enterprise is for naught.
0: Absolutely. That brings up the question of insiders versus outsiders. With Burns, we've got kind of a hybrid um, because he's so familiar with CIA operations, as you, as you pointed out. Um, but what about the overview of long decades of CIA directors? We have these uh, insiders, Richard Helms, Bob Gates, Bill Colby, Gina Haspel, the outsiders, James Schlesinger admiral turner the elder bush leon panetta and burns can you make any generalizations about who are the most effective outsiders insiders or does it depend mostly on the personality and and their relationship with the president
3: you know it's it's no coincidence that leon panetta was the gold standard not only as white house chief of staff but also in, in the very top ranks of cia directors And the reason for that is that it has so much to do with what you bring to the job. And it it has to do with being grounded, being able to tell the president hard truths, being familiar with the corridors of power, knowing how to deal with Congress uh, and the White House. Uh, Leon Panetta had it all. George H.W. Bush had it all. He was an outsider. But he was very successful. There have been outsiders who were disastrous. Uh, Jim Schlesinger, you know, they they almost didn't put his portrait up in the hall with all the other CIA directors for fear that somebody would take a, you know, a hatchet to his portrait. And I think Stan Turner, you mentioned, came in and fired everybody left and right. Um, they were, they were disastrous. Um, and when so you I, talk really, about
0: disastrous, Chris, what do you mean in terms of administration of the agency?
3: Well, they, they, they triggered almost full scale rebellions in the ranks. Right. Uh, I think Schlesinger and, and Stan Turner, Stan Turner's one of his problems was, you know, the irony is that he was just a brilliant guy. I mean, he was ahead of Jimmy Carter in his class at Annapolis uh, he was brilliant. He had a chest full of medals, a four-star admiral. Uh, it seemed like a great choice. Turner was a guy who, um, he believed, he didn't believe in human intelligence. He believed in satellites and gadgets and SIGINT uh, and, uh, and and paid a heavy price for that, um, just in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the morale at, at CIA. And of course, obviously, it didn't, didn't help didn't help him in the end with uh, uh, with desert one and the, 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 the disaster in the, in the desert outside Tehran.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, and uh, George Tenet wasn't helped by his long experience with CIA uh, with as a, a, a staff director of the Intelligence Committee, uh, you know, so, so the performance of CIA director has to be also judged on the accuracy uh, of the intelligence he brings the, to the president. Um, and standing by his guns with that intelligence, and George Tenet, sir, you have to say, it was a big fail.
3: Well, Tenet was, a, in my mind, really a Shakespearean character. I mean, it, mm. and, and imagine on imagine on, on, your watch as CIA director having the walk-up to, um, to 9-11, the attacks of 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan, the CIA-led invasion, the uh, so-called enhanced interrogation techniques and black sites, and all of that just a warm-up for the invasion of Iraq based on your flawed assessment that Iraq had WMDs. Mm-hmm. That was Tennant's tragic flaw. His, 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 real, his real downfall was his inability to tell George W. Bush what he didn't want to hear when it came to Iraq. I would say that again in that infamous slam dunk meeting with George W. Bush, Tenet should have drawn, a lot, should have said, "Look, Mr. President, it's not there. We haven't got the case."
0: You've immersed yourself in CIA operations, CIA history, and the personalities of these directors. Uh, I think you've interviewed all, uh, most, if not all, living CIA directors. You've had extraordinary access. Um, do you have any insight? Uh, this is well-trod ground, but do you have any insight on how Tenet went wrong on that major call of that did absolutely affect the course of history?
3: I think it's, well, I, I devote two chapters to Tenet in the Spymasters, and, um, and I like to think that it's a, uh, it's a more nuanced version of uh, Tenet's story than than is usually told, I think that the notion that uh, the Tenet and the CIA simply went along with uh, Dick Cheney and the neocons and their uh, made-up uh, intelligence uh, on the on on Iraq is simplistic. I, I think that, but it and and the, but there's no question that and there, you you can find a lot of people at CIA who will tell you. Um, that tenant believed the assessment that they delivered to to, uh, to George W. Bush. So it wasn't as, I don't think it was quite so simple as, uh, as doing Dick Cheney's bidding. I think that, uh, on the other hand, it was a tragically flawed assessment. Uh, it was, you know, again, famously, the first version that Colin Powell was given was written by the Vice President's office, uh, Tenet and Colin Powell threw it out, went back to work. Uh, Powell insisted on, on on having backup for every assertion he made. And yet, at the end of the day, it was all BS. Uh, you know, yeah. it was based on. So I, I think that Tenet will tell you that in the case, in the infamous case of Curveball, Curveball mm-hmm. was. Uh, as 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 most of your listeners probably know, the dubious uh, source who was uh, in German custody, whom the CIA never interviewed, who said that there were the, all these vans were biological had biological weapons, and it was uh, Tenet swears up and down that he was never told that Curveball was unreliable, <clears throat> but there were plenty of people at CIA who knew. Uh, so. I got to
0: tell you, I drilled down into this intelligence and the process, the decision making on WMD back in the day, like many other journalists on this beat did. And uh, I I was struck, you know, the findings that CIA made, they wouldn't have passed muster in a newsroom. An editor would have thrown that back in a reporter's face and said, you got to get better sources than this. You need corroboration. This is junk. And I've had CIA people, you know, formers mostly call me up and say, why did you run a story on this and that? And I would joke, I'd say, unlike you guys, I need two sources telling me something.
3: I mean, <laughs> right, right, very,
0: very disturbing. Do you, do you think Burns, uh, Bill Burns, the new CIA director, Chris Whipple, do you think that, that he's going to improve the, the analytical product of the agency? Are you confident about that?
3: I'd like his chances. I mean, I, I think that I think that Burns Burns was very persuasive to me. Again, I, I have an interview with him in the paperback edition of the Spymasters. Masters, and and he was at least persuasive to me that his one of his top priorities, if not his top priority, was to repair the damage done by Trump, the politicization of the intelligence community, or at least uh, Trump's uh, effort to politicize the agency. And, um, you know, I, th- I think Burns has no higher priority than to try to give the president uh, straight information.
0: Do you think if Trump comes back, and there's a lot of fear that uh, among intelligence professionals, that um, the former president is going to make a comeback, and we now know a lot more about January 6th events and attempts to overthrow the legitimate election of President Biden, um, that he won't be shy the next time around about replacing intelligence chiefs with with, uh, yes men uh, and worse. Um, Do you get any sense of how the CIA leadership would react to that?
3: I think it's a real risk. I think it's it's a very real threat that CIA needs to be thinking about and and not only the um, not only at burns's level but but I think I really think in the, in the wake of the damage that Trump did, I think uh, there really should be more attention paid at this point to strengthening the independence of the inspectors general. I think there need to be stronger whistleblower protections uh, you know it was really just it uh, kind of amazing that the anonymous CIA whistleblower who uh, brought the charges that resulted in Trump's first impeachment, um, that he was never exposed or, or, uh, or punished by Trump, who, who talked about this, this person committing treason, mm-hmm. uh, who talked about basically wanting to string this guy up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't really any protection in place. Gina Haspel, to her credit, and I criticize her for many other things in the book, But to her credit, I think she protected his uh, confidentiality.
0: Gina Haspel was considered by many uh, insiders as being too accommodating of Trump. For example, I have heard, uh, it's been told to me, that she didn't jump on the Havana syndrome issue right away uh, and and, uh, aggressively pursue that because that would have led to the doorstep of Vladimir Putin and the Russians... Um, do you agree with that assessment that she was too accommodating of President Trump? I,
3: I do. I, I And I think that in, in many cases, um, you may recall that she went to one of his State of the Union speeches and 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 was applauding uh, many of his his lines, um, which which no CIA director has any business doing. I was told by a very, very high ranking White House official, Trump official that, um, you know, Gina loves killing terrorists, and she's really good at it. And one of the one of the cases that, again, has had really insufficient attention was the, the lethal drone strike on uh, the Iranian General Soleimani in January of 2020. Uh, you know, I don't have to tell you, um, for decades, The CIA has been prohibited from assassinating foreign leaders through executive orders of 12333, um, among others. Uh, They've always felt that 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 was a bridge too far. And yet Gina Haspel accommodated Trump uh, and and thereby really, frankly, putting a target on every every American official as well. Uh, There are reasons why that prohibition has been in place but and it was ignored. So I think there are there a number of cases where I think Gina Haspel was too accommodating to Trump.
0: Was there anything that surprised you in your research for your book?
3: I think the extent to which the, the CIA is, you know, the, the CIA director is the person we depend on to prevent another Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and even a lethal pandemic. I mean, it's hard to overstate the importance of the position. You know, we have a director of national intelligence now who's who is Bill Burns' nominal superior, Avril Haynes. And by all accounts, they have a good relationship. And the DNI, of course, does the president's daily brief uh, with lots of input from the CIA. But to me, the DCIA, as he is now called, the director of central uh, of the agency, is still. The the importance of that position is hard to overstate uh, for for better and worse. Uh, Without John McCone, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis might have ended very differently. And without George Tenet, we might not have gone to war with Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the stakes.
0: Yeah. And we've got some big stakes coming up in terms of the growing tension with China over Taiwan and other issues. And we, we can only hope that uh, Bill Burns and his agency gets it right when that crunch time comes. Anyway, Chris Whipple, thanks for being on Spy Talk. It's, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, you're the go-to guy on current CIA leadership. We'll be back talking to you again real soon, I'm sure.
3: Great to be back. Thanks, Jeff.
0: That's Chris Whipple. The Spy Masters is out this week in paperback.
1: Listening to him, Jeff, uh, it struck me that the leadership qualities you need to head up the CIA really aren't all that different from the leadership qualities you need for any organization, right? A great resume isn't always enough.
0: That's right. You got to have good relations with the boss. And for the CIA, the boss is the president. If you don't have the president's ear, you're not... uh, you're not going to function very well. There was a joke that went around about uh, a former CIA director who could never get a meeting with uh, President Bill Clinton. And when a plane crashed, a, a light plane crashed on the White House grounds, they said that was him trying to get a meeting with Clinton. So. Um, Right now, however, it uh, seems that Bill Burns, the current CIA director, has a long-standing and good and close relationship with President Biden. So that augurs well, at least for him and the CIA.
1: Coming up, we're going to talk cryptocurrency. Stay with us. Welcome back. The mantra for investigators of all kinds of skullduggery has been follow the money because the cash trail often leads directly to culprits, but increasingly hard currency is being replaced by cryptocurrency. And that is posing challenges because crypto transactions bypass the banking system and its controls. I called up Juan Zarate of K2 Integrity to talk about it. He was deputy national security Advisor in the George W. Bush administration. And before that was the first ever assistant secretary of the Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crime, leading some of the largest asset recovery operations in history. Cryptocurrency, I have to admit, is a bit mystifying to me, so I asked Zarate first for an explainer. Crypto for dummies.
2: Think of this as a kind of railroad system, connecting different computers um, that allow for the movement and exchange of tokens. And what can be a token can be anything, can be a, a currency like a Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, but it can also be a smart contract. It can be something like an NFT, a piece of artwork, right? So, in, thinking about the crypto universe, you have to think about sort of uh, the things that create crypto, which are the the computers and and the uh, and the the calculations, the railroad of that system, and then the tokens on it. And again, what has been most in the in the news in in recent years is really uh, how to think about cryptocurrency, which is the movement of, of value uh, as tokens on the, this rail system that can then be validated in the context of that system is decentralized um, and is really driven by the calculations uh, of the computers that are both mining, creating these tokens, as well as then trading them and uh, validating them.
1: So people like myself uh, see individuals creating these new tokens apparently out of thin air and ask, is this just funny money?
2: Yes, I mean, it, it's a great question because there is a proliferation of both the tokens, uh, the cryptocurrencies, other tokens, other things on the rails. And so there's a sense of, this is a little bit of um, you know the tulip, um, the tulip craze uh, from uh, centuries ago. And, and so it is a good question. I think the debate underway right now is, do these currencies represent real value? Are they backed by things that, that have value other than the computational value um, and the trading that goes along with these cryptos? And do they form part of, an, of a new market, a new part of the financial system? And I think some of this is answered by the markets themselves. You know, what, what is truly valuable? What is truly backed? Um, like these stable coins, which are backed by, let's say the US dollar or another fiat currency. Um, or, or, you know, is it, is it valued because of what people are willing to trade? And at the end of the day, the question of value is really determined by whether or not people value these things, whether they're usable, whether or not they're adopted. Um, and, and I think that's really, we're, we're right in the middle of that debate, and it's a great question you ask because the markets, the regulators, and others are trying to answer that question as we speak.
1: So China, I understand, has banned mining
2: and trading. What do they know that we don't? Well, what's fascinating here, Gene, is China's had a schizophrenic sort of reaction and relationship to crypto. That is to say, they've had periods where They've been very open to it. They've had a concentration of uh, Bitcoin mining. You know, the, this is where the sort of the computer farms that are generating the computational power that's required to mine, to create uh, the, the, uh, the Bitcoin and to validate the, the trading and the, and the rest. Um, they've, they've talked about having a digital remnant B, uh, creating their own cryptocurrency. Uh, and they've gone through different stages where they've allowed it, not allowed it. At the end of the day, Gene, I think what they've done is predictable because the Chinese don't like systems uh, or elements of power, whether it's financial or otherwise, that are outside of central control. And so they're very much willing, I think, to think about a, a digital currency that the state creates and controls. They have trouble, I think, thinking about how they control and regulate a decentralized system that is... not not just outside their control within China, but outside of the normal rails and controls of the financial system. And so for a centralized autocratic country, um, you know, it makes sense to not really like or perhaps even to ban crypto uh, because it is decentralized, it's open. Many in the crypto universe would argue uh, this is the, the democratization of finance, allowing peer to peer transactions, people to control their finance, not reliant on central banks or or you know, big stodgy financial institutions. So in some ways the Chinese reaction is somewhat predictable. They don't like what they can't control. And this is a highly decentralized model of finance. So
1: you for many years were tracking bad guys, specifically terrorists, by looking at their finances. So there are rules and regulations around banking, which allow you to see transactions and follow the money. Are there rules and regulations like that around crypto? Or does it cripple efforts like the ones that you mounted against terrorist organizations?
2: There's a lot to unpack there, Gene, great question. I think that the answer to the first, are there rules, regulations? The answer is yes and no. And I'll explain that in a second. and the answer to whether or not it cripples uh, efforts i would say no but with a caveat so let me let me try to explain what i mean by all that um, there are three real big policy and regulatory regulatory concerns with the crypto universe especially now that we've crossed the the rubicon of legitimacy right we now have you know the, the regulators uh, not just accepting but uh, but allowing for trading and adoption of of crypto in a variety of ways in the formal financial system. Um, so because of that, there are three issues that really regulators are worried about. One is safety and soundness issues, right? Is there systemic risk to the, you know, having the crypto economy, um, you know, exposed into and through the financial system? Can it crash the system, right? That's one way of saying it. So that's one issue. The second is consumer fraud. And you saw this, remember the Mt. Dock's case where People lost you know, millions of dollars uh, because there was fraud in Mt. Gox. It was a crypto uh, holding company. Uh, and it kind of went away overnight, right? So there's a fraud and consumer protection issue. And then there's the issue you're raising, which is, uh, does crypto give access to capital to those who would otherwise not have access to capital? Because what we've tried to do in our world uh, for years now, post 9-11, is, can you make it harder, costlier and riskier for bad people to raise and move money around the world? That, that was the strategy. Um, and the more you can constrain their access to capital, constrain their reach in the financial and commercial system, the more you can constrict their strategic capabilities. Right. That was what we were doing, or at least trying to. Um, what you have now is a question of, well, does crypto give the bad guys access to things that they would otherwise not have. In ransomware, for example, the vast bulk of payments are in crypto. And so are you making it easier for bad guys to hold data and systems hostage? Are you? So it's a legitimate question. Well, I think I think yes and no. Um, and I think the challenge here is that uh, crypto is a new avenue for acquiring value, moving value, storing value. So that means you have to you have to regulate it. You have to figure out, um, are there legitimate uses? And there are. And how do the regulations that have applied in the formal system apply then in the crypto environment? And that's where we are. We, we are in a place where some of those regulations are being applied. So for example, virtual asset service providers uh, like Circle or Coinbase, to which I've been an advisor for many years, have to register as a money service business, and they have to have anti-money laundering controls, and they have to know their clients that hold wallets and accounts on their platform. But there are elements of that system that are still unformed and still in in formation. So for example, there's this issue of unhosted wallets. So what happens if there's a wallet that isn't centralized in one of these VASPs, so to speak, what regulations apply to transfers and transactions that come in and out of there. That is still in formation in the US and around the world. So, so,
1: so right now they can move big sums of money across borders without being
2: detected, right? Yes and no. Uh, to the extent that they are moving uh, big amounts through centralized uh, platforms like a Circle, like a, a Coinbase that are regulated, that gets tracked, that gets reported. Those are institutions that are doing what normal banks do, which is file suspicious activity reports and but, close but they down can, bad accounts. But they
1: can just go to one of those other others, right? Stay away from the regulated ones. It doesn't sound like it's a very hard thing to do.
2: You're absolutely right. And I think that's the challenge of the system, which is it's decentralized. So not as much of it is centralized through, let's say, dollar clearing banks in the in the formal financial system. So that's one problem. The other problem is a lot of this world is still unregulated. And just like you've had in the past tax havens or pockets of places where money laundering is replete or shell companies are created, same thing here. You're going to have pockets of uh, illicit activity, dark corners of this universe that are used by bad actors to access capital and money. And that becomes then a challenge for law enforcement. It goes back to your second question, which is, um, does this make it harder for law enforcement? It does and it doesn't. It does to the extent that there are these movements that are decentralized, not as easily traceable. On the other hand, there are elements of the blockchain, the open ledger systems that are used that are highly traceable. So this explains why in the Colonial Pipeline ransomware payment context, U.S. authorities were actually able to identify the wallet and then take back most of that payment.
1: But that was one instance where they've been able to do that. I haven't heard of any others.
2: Well, I think some is done quietly. Some, I think we're in a, a, a point, Gene, where we, we haven't been as proactive as we can be in that regard. Um, both with the private sector and with authorities. But I think you're going to see more and more of that, in part because their tools exist to be able to trace and track. Um, And I think we're getting better public-private partnership to try to do exactly what happened in the Colonial Pipeline context.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that a lot of these people who have wallets are anonymous. Um, and so even though you might be able to see where the money's going, you might not know to whom it is going. Am I right?
2: That's right. So, so part of the challenge here is there are elements of anonymity in the system. So anonymity as to who may hold the wallet. Now, again, that's very different if it's centralized, if it's in a virtual asset service provider or a PayPal account, uh, you know. those institutions are gonna know who the customer is. So you and I can have a wallet, but we're gonna have to give them our information. But if you have an unhosted wallet or other platforms that aren't requesting that uh, in unregulated sectors or or jurisdictions, you're not gonna get that. But the other problem, Gene, it goes to your earlier point, there are other kinds of cryptocurrencies like privacy coins that uh, embed greater anonymity. Uh, even more so than, than Bitcoin or Ethereum. This is why what we're starting to see with not just ransomware, but with terrorist financing potentially, is that groups gravitate more towards some of these coins or some of these platforms. Uh, Monero, for example, is a cryptocurrency that you've, you've seen reported on that um, you know, illicit actors prefer because it's uh, harder for authorities to determine who owns Or controls that behind the scenes. You mentioned
1: terrorists. Is there evidence that terrorists or extremists are using Bitcoin now?
2: Um, We have seen. I should
1: say crypto. Crypto, yeah.
2: No, we've certainly seen evidence of terrorist groups, extremist groups flirting with it, right, and and having, uh, for example, donation campaigns uh, earmarked in crypto. Um, and, and beginnings of flirtation, but it hasn't been in mass. It hasn't, been, uh, hasn't become predominant. Uh, and to date, at least it's not the way that those kinds of groups, uh, you know, raise or move money. It might be, right? And I think this is something authorities have to watch and they are. I think the bigger problem right now, Gene, is countries like North Korea. That have had sanctions. A- Exactly. Evading sanctions, they've been cut off from elements of the financial system. I think we've done a fairly strong job of that. The, the problem, of course, is they've not only beefed up their cyber capabilities for offensive and defensive purposes, but they've figured out that this domain, this digital payment domain, so to speak, is a, an arena where they can profit, they can do so by hiding their hand, and they can do it. Uh, pretty regularly and quickly. You know, the UN reported last year that the crypto heist uh, and the hacking and the other activities that North Koreans have been involved in has profited them by about $2 billion. So this is a major source of revenue for a rogue regime, which has to be a concern for the United States and other countries.
1: Anyone, any other countries besides North Korea doing this successfully at the moment that you're
2: aware of? Um, Not as successfully. I think what you have is countries like China, Russia, Iran that are used to using proxies for a variety of reasons, Um, flirting with different groups, organized crime uh, elements and hackers uh, to then influence and operate in this domain. Largely, you've seen this, Gene, you know this better than, than, than any anyone else. You've seen this in the cyber domain where cyber attacks and other cyber activity has often happened through proxies one, two steps removed from the central authorities of those countries. Um, I think you're, you're probably starting to see elements of flirtation in the crypto domain. We've certainly seen that reported with the Russians with some of their influence operations where they were leveraging payment through crypto as a way of trying to hide their hand the Department of
1: Justice has now formed a national cryptocurrency enforcement team what do you think is
2: it enough um, it's good it's not going to be enough I think um, this this domain has to be seen like we've we've seen other domains of the financial system Uh mixed with a, a little bit of trying to manage the internet right so it's it's a part of the financial system it's part but partly the internet's half man half beast if you will and I think we have to not only figure out how to regulate it best right it's not not a one-size-fits-all but how do you how do you regulate this in a way that recognizes the advantages of the technology but also some of the vulnerabilities and then building systems and enforcement, Capabilities, knowledge are, are all around this ecosystem, which means you've got to have enforcement. You've got to have, you know, 1811s and analysts in the US government who are trained in this space. You've got to have new models of public private cooperation with the legitimate VASP that are trying to cooperate with the government. This has to be kind of a, a, a whole paradigmatic shift toward managing this. Precisely because we're not going back, right? We've crossed the Rubicon. The crypto economy is with us now. Now we have to recognize that there's risk, there's vulnerabilities like any other part of the system, and we now have to attack it and address it the way we would any other vulnerability.
1: Presumably, we need some sort of international approach to this. It isn't just an American issue, Congress, and the agencies can't just set rules and regulations on this and expect to deal with it effectively.
2: You're right. And I think um, you're, you're going to see that in a couple of different domains. I think central banks, which themselves are flirting with issuing crypto, right? Central bank digital currencies, uh, some of which are already out there. Uh, you know, Bahamas has their sand dollar pilot, and you've got other, other countries that are uh, in latter stages of, of their exploration. So you're going to have central banks um, formulating rules of the road and uh, parameters for how central bank digital currencies operate. You are also seeing in the G20, the G7 discussions around how to how to regulate them writ large. And then in organizations like the Financial Action Task Force, which sets the standards, for anti-money laundering, countering terrorist financing around the world, Um, already putting out guidance, interpretive notes around how to think about the application of anti-money laundering rules, counter-proliferation finance rules, et cetera, into the crypto environment. Um, The interesting part of all this, Gene, a little bit of the scary part too, is this is all in formation.
1: But in the meantime, a lot of illegal activity and nefarious activities taking place.
2: You've had authorities worried about this, working on these issues and trying to work with industry to figure out how to get to these to these potential problems, but it's not easy. And Gene, to your earlier point, there are parts of, the, of this universe, parts of the global environment uh, that aren't, aren't doing a good enough job, that aren't regulating well enough, um, and where you're going to have dark corners of this universe operating which then need to be attacked.
1: That was Juan Zarate, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Bush, and now a global co-managing partner for K2 Integrity. Well, Jeff, do you understand crypto now?
0: A lot better, thanks. You know, you and I have both uh, talked with Juan Zarate uh, for a long time now, since shortly after 9 when he played a key role in the Bush administration and getting uh, terror financing tracking off the ground. It was Pretty pretty new field at that point, although you know we had followed the money before, but we really started to uh, clamp down on it after nine one one. I was fascinated by these allusions to the tulip bubble. If if you remember in school, uh, there was a seventeenth century speculation uh, bubble over uh, tulips uh, of all things, uh, and it crashed and. Uh, uh, prognosticators keep thinking that the uh, cryptocurrency market is going to crash sometime soon. But in the meantime, it's like dark money in politics, isn't it? Uh, It's hard to trace, but it is traceable. And um, it's clear that national security officials have got their eyes on it.
1: Well, as he mentioned, he thinks we've passed the Rubicon here. Um, You know, it really is an alternative financial world that some people project in 10 or 20 years is really going to be dominant, that all assets are going to be digital. I read some statistics recently that globally, 220 million people are already using cryptocurrencies.
0: Good Lord, those could be my neighbors. And I don't even know about it. So maybe I should take another look at it. I guess you, you can make a fortune if you uh, bet right on it. Anyway, that's another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. We're new here at MSW Media, and we're happy to be here. I hope you'll come back and join us again next week. I'm Jeff Stein.
1: And a reminder, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. I'm Jean Meserve. Have a great week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.